Good morning, Three Rivers. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3. As we continue to walk through the book of Genesis, and while you're turning there, I just want to remind you of our baptism service, but also our baptism class. So if you are wanting to be baptized, or if you have children that have professed faith and and you're walking through that with them, uh, come see me after church or send me an email and just let me know as we're preparing for that class in May. Uh, we really want people to uh, to be discipled and make sure they understand why they're being baptized. And so we'd, we'd love for you to be a part of that. Um, Genesis chapter 3, we have looked at the creation of the universe by the power of God's word and then God created in Genesis uh, 2. Man and woman to have dominion over the earth. And now we look at Genesis 3 to figure out how we got in the mess that we're in. Right? So Genesis chapter 3. And this passage actually, I think, begins in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. So we're going to begin there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. As we look at the temptation and the fall of man. Genesis 2, verse 25. And the man... And his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And thank you for the truth that we just sang, that you have truly paid our debt. And that we are no longer considered sinners in your eyes, but by faith in Christ, you have declared us to be righteous. Only through the shed blood of Christ. And so, Father, as we are reminded of how we fell, Father, remind us more of your grace and how you have raised us up to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when we set our preaching schedule to preach through Genesis, we're not always looking at the church calendar to see where things fall. Um, and so we didn't plan in advance to preach Genesis chapter 3 on Palm Sunday. Typically, we would preach through one of the Gospels and look at the story, as Emmett mentioned, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And at first, it might seem that Genesis 3 is just a really inappropriate passage for a day that celebrates such a joyful uh, and hopeful day for the people of God. Um, when the people yelled to Jesus coming into Jerusalem, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On a day that seems so joyous and filled with hope, it almost seems wrong to focus on a story of the fall of man. And yet... The more I thought about it this week, if you look a little closer, I think there is no biblical passage more appropriate for Palm Sunday than Genesis chapter 3. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, as Emmett just taught us, the Jews were yelling, Hosanna, which means save us. And we know that their motives were not pure. They wanted a military ruler, an earthly king to save them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. They did need to be saved. But not from Caesar. They needed saving from a greater enemy whose rule was so oppressive and burdensome that it would lead ultimately to death. They needed to be saved, but not from Caesar. 
They needed to be saved from sin. And so as we look at this passage in Genesis 3, let's trust God's good providence today that he has led us to this specific text for a specific reason. Not only to show us how sin entered into the world, but also to warn us of the danger of temptation and the deadly results of our rebellion to God and to lift our eyes up to that carpenter from Nazareth who's riding into the streets of Jerusalem to be crucified for our sins. So today is a lesson. It's a, it's a way for us to peek into the enemy's tactics so that you and I can listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter 5, 8. Three rivers, be sober-minded. Be watchful. For your adversary this morning prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So where do we begin this text today? We begin with naked humans and a crafty serpent. The text really begins in verse 25 of chapter 2. There is this theme of nakedness where Adam and Eve are living in integrity without sin. To be naked and not ashamed means that they, they weren't afraid of the other person taking advantage of them. This passage begins with Adam and Eve in nakedness. And notice where the passage ends in chapter 3, verse 7. It ends with them trying to cover themselves with leaves. In other words, in just eight short verses, they are going to move from innocent nakedness to shameful nakedness. From integrity to guilt. Not only that, there's a wordplay here. It's intentional by the, the writer of Genesis. That in chapter 2, verse 25, the word naked and the word crafty divide, de, describing the serpent in Genesis 3, it's a play on words. They almost sound the same. But they point out two very characteristic, two different characteristics between the snake and the humans. The word crafty describing the serpent carries this idea of him being wary. He knows where the traps are. He knows where danger lurks. There's nothing really sinful about being shrewd and crafty, but we're going to see that the serpent abuses that. Now, naked, on the other hand, implies that Adam and Eve are oblivious to evil. They're oblivious to where the danger is. Now, the point here for us is that as there's this wordplay between the nakedness of humans and the craftiness of the snake, the point is that the integrity of the man is the target of Satan's attack. It is his area of expertise. So don't think that if you try to live with integrity and you try to live a godly life, you're not going to have a spiritual target on your back. That's why we need to know the nature of temptation. Temptation is dangerous for two reasons. The first reason is it causes us to question God's word. And the second reason is it causes us to doubt God's goodness. Let's see this in the text. The first point we want to make this morning comes from verses 1 through 3. And that is that temptation raises questions about God's word. Temptation raises questions about God's word. Let's look at chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I don't know if you noticed here, but 
God's word is quoted three times in Genesis chapter 3. And in that small passage, it's quoted three times wrongly. Three times it's inappropriately quoted. The first time, God's word is questioned in a misleading way. The second time, it's paraphrased. And the third time, God's word is flat out denied. So how do we see this? This is, this is, we're seeing God's word being mishandled and Satan is raising questions about the integrity of God's word. So how is God's word questioned? In verse one, the serpent asks Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now the New Testament identifies this serpent as the devil. Uh, I, I, I think it's important here to point out, Mitch and I were talking this week, that this is a good indication of, of a snake that was created by God that has been uh, dominated by evil. That Satan has in some way uh, demonized this serpent and taken advantage of it. Now, there is this hierarchy that God has made in the book of Genesis, right? God is the creator and God makes man to be accountable to God. And then he creates the woman to be accountable to the husband and to be his helper. And then he creates the creatures at the very bottom so that man and woman would have dominion over them. But what we're going to see in this passage is that that whole hierarchy is flipped on its head. So that the woman begins to listen to the serpent. And the husband listens to his wife and nobody's listening to God. The serpent's question seems harmless. He's just starting a conversation. Did God actually say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Now, that's not what God said. If you go back to Genesis 2, God said, you may freely eat of all the trees except for this one. But Satan words the question in such a way that there's not a simple answer. It's going to force Eve to try to defend God and defend his word. And so it, it's just getting the conversation started. Did God really say that you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? It's not a direct denial yet, but it's not easy to answer. And it leaves open several possible answers. So the, what's the serpent trying to do here? He's just trying to engage the woman in a conversation. And here's the deal. When the authority and the truthfulness of God's word is called into question, we're not very far away from compromise. When you begin to question if, it got, if God's word is true and if it has true authority, you're not very far away from compromising. So now we see that God's word is being questioned. And now the woman's response, she's actually going to paraphrase God's word. It's been questioned and now it's being paraphrased. Look at how she answers. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now she paraphrases. She doesn't quote it directly. And she actually changes what God said three different ways. This is the danger of paraphrasing, right? The first thing that she does is she minimizes God's provision. Or she minimizes what God has really blessed them with. Did you notice what God says in chapter 2. He says you may freely or surely eat of all the trees in the garden. But what does Eve say? The woman said we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She didn't say that we could freely eat of everything. She just says yeah we can eat of the trees. She's minimizing the blessing. She's minimizing what God had actually given them and the provision for them. He said, I'm giving you this whole garden. You can eat and, 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 and enjoy every good thing that I've made. And Eve just says, yeah, we can eat. 
She minimizes how good it is. The second thing she does is she adds to God's word. She adds to what God has prohibited. Look at what she says in verse 3. She says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. Lest you die. Now, if you go back to Genesis 2, God didn't say anything about touching that tree. Eve is adding to the commandment. She's making a law for herself. And man, isn't this true? I, we're good at this, especially Bible believing Christians. We're really good at making up rules that God didn't make. We set un, unbiblical rules for ourselves that lead to legalism and just get us in a lot of trouble. God had, had, had required one thing, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we go f- beyond that and pr- place unnecessary burdens on our shoulders that God never meant for us to carry. So she minimizes God's word. She adds to God's word. And the third thing she does is she weakens his word. She weakens the penalty. Notice that last phrase in, in verse 3. Lest you die. Don't eat lest you die. The Hebrew language is actually different from what God said. God said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. In other words, yeah, I mean, there might be punishment, but but it's not really emphasized. God said, if you eat of this, you will surely die. And she weakens it. It's, it's not really going to happen. Uh, we don't really have to take this that seriously. And so... This is dangerous when you begin to paraphrase God's word. And it may seem trivial, but that subtle change in wording undermines the very severity of disobedience. It is God's wrath that will come on you. You really will die if you eat this. What we see here is that a command that is questioned is no longer the original command. So let's be clear. I want to say something here to us as Christians about how we handle God's word. There is no violation in us paraphrasing God's word. We do it all the time, right? It does not mean that we have to quote God's word exactly anytime we quote scripture. However, if the precise wording of the original commandment is weakened, if we somehow dilute the word, if we paraphrase it in a way that gets away from what God originally said, if we somehow weaken God's word, then the appeal to sin will grow stronger. And I often hear Christians do this. They'll say things like, well, you know, the Bible says something like this. And then they'll often paraphrase or misquote a passage or they'll give the wrong reference. They'll say, you know, somewhere in uh, Corinthians, I'm like, there's two of them. Somewhere in Corinthians, it says this. And I'm like, you're not even in the right testament. Right. They're they're way off. And and that, that. I'm not saying everybody has, nobody has an encyclopedic brain. Sometimes we make mistakes remembering things or quoting things. But what I found is that a lot of times people just don't take the Bible seriously. And the way that we quote it, and the way that we handle it. Well, God said somewhere, and, and, and people make excuses a lot of times about, well, I just can't remember those things. But somehow we manage to remember where we live. We know our address. We know our social security number. We know our phone number, email. We know our favorite restaurants. We can name every actor from the office. We know every lyric to every Taylor Swift song. But somehow when it comes to scripture, we say, well, it says somewhere of something about this. We expect doctors to know terms when it comes to anatomy we expect those men and women who do give medical services to know what the heck they're talking about 
We expect your, you expect your accountant to know the law when he does your taxes. You expect him to know those things. How much more should we take seriously the very word of God when we see Eve paraphrasing it? And when she paraphrases it, she has no ground to stand on when Satan flat out denies it. There's good reason why Paul urged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is why when, when, when I preach sermons and I quote scripture, I want to tell you where I got it from. And I want to read it exactly. We want to make sure we get the word right. And it's not sin to paraphrase scripture, but when you paraphrase, make sure you know what it says. And don't make the excuse that you don't have a good memory. Yes, you do. Work to memorize it and hide the word of God in your heart. We, we believe God's word is precious. It's inspired. It's life-giving. It's true. Then we would do well not only to read it, but to memorize it and to internalize it. Your lack of knowledge of scripture might be the very foothold that Satan needs to deceive you and bring you down. Finally, we see God's word is flat out denied. It's been questioned, it's been paraphrased, and now in verses 4 and 5 we're going to see that his word is denied. When, ser- when the serpent sees that the woman hasn't retained the precise wording of scripture, he knows he's got her. And that's why he can say in verse 4, you will not die. So that's the first thing we see about temptation. Temptation raises questions about God's word, but it goes a step further. Verses 4 and 5 show us that temptation also raises doubts about God's goodness. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He takes the commandment and in the Hebrew he just flat out says, literally, not you will surely die. God said you will surely die. Satan says, not, you will surely die. Flat out denies the word. And then Satan explains the motive. Here's why, Eve, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He flat out denies it. And then he questions God's integrity. This is the lie that has enticed humans from the beginning. That there is no punishment from disobedience. This is why Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 8 verse 44. He said, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. There is no punishment for disobedience. You can do whatever you want and God doesn't care. You will not surely die. But he not only denies it. In verse 5, he does explain God's motive. And the motive is that God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and that you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. In other words, Eve, God's holding out on you. He's holding out because he doesn't, he's jealous and he doesn't want you to come to the, to the level where he is. He does not want you to go from humanity to divinity. He is holding back for you, Eve. Is this not sin's appeal? 
to overpromise. God's holding back. Go ahead and do that thing. Go ahead and listen to this thing. Go ahead and watch this thing. Go ahead and do this. Go here. Do this. Say this. Go ahead. Fulfill that sinful desire. Go ahead. It's okay. Do it. Because God's holding out on you. And what you're doing now will give you more pleasure than anything God could ever provide. He's holding back. There's more for you. You are made for more. And God's holding back. This is sin's promise to make us believe that the temporary pleasure of sin is better than the eternal joy that God promises us. And what's amazing about that ludicrous promise is how often we fall for it. And I'm not deceived to know, and I I realize this, every one of us could probably raise our hands even from this week and say, I fell. I've sinned. Done things that I wish I had not done. And now I'm left with guilt. Because I believed the lie that my way was better than God's way. And by the way, don't let's not think that we would have done any better than Adam and Eve. They were perfect and they were the best that humanity had to offer. And they fell. And so here's the principle for us. You will never eagerly obey God's commandments as long as you doubt that he's good. If you doubt that he's good and he's holding back on you, you may obey, but it won't come out of a desire of love. It will come out of a, well, he's my taskmaster and I guess I have to do this. But I don't really love him and I'm not sure if he loves me. If we don't believe that the word is good for us, we will never obey out of a right heart. So we've seen what temptation does. It raises questions about God's word. It raises doubts about God's goodness. And now Satan takes a step back. He stops rationalizing with Eve. And we see this next step in temptation. Number three, temptation succeeds by appealing to our senses. It appeals to our senses. You can rationalize it all day long. Satan's making the argument up in the head. But eventually he has to step back and let the fruit do its job by appealing to the woman's senses. Look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. The tempter had removed the barrier to their eating by convincing them that God would not punish them for it. He had brought Eve to the brink of sin by rationalizing it in her mind, but it would be the fruit's appeal to her senses that would eventually bring her to sin. And this is true in our lives. We we give in to temptation when we justify it in our mind. And then we give in to the physical appeal. We're told that this fruit is appealing in three different ways. Physical, emotional, and spiritual. Eve looks at the fruit and sees that it's good for food. It's practical. It's physical. It's, it just look, it's good to eat. It's pleasing to the eyes. It's emotional. It's pretty. Number three... The spiritual component, it was desirable to make one wise. There's all types of temptation going on here. You can't hear, you can't help but hear echoes of 1 John chapter 2, where where John tells the, the church at Ephesus, do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And this is what is in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not from the Father, but it is from the world. He echoes Genesis chapter 3. 
the physical temptation. Eve focuses on the potential good of the fruit and she ignores the evil that is there in disobedience. It was practical. The emotional temptation. This word desirable. It, it, she wanted it. it was, it's the same word used in the Ten Commandments for coveting. And in that sin of coveting, it's not just sin to desire it, but then it's also sin to take it. This is what Eve does. She sees it, she wants it, and she takes it. And then there's the spiritual temptation. She desired wisdom, but she was desiring it in the wrong way. You guys remember, it's, it's not wrong to seek biblical wisdom. Scripture encourages us to seek wisdom. But Proverbs says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Eve is not fearing the Lord here. She's trying to gain wisdom through disobedience. And now we see this idea of taking and eating at the end of verse 6. She took of its fruit. She ate. She gave to her husband who was also with her. And he ate. You see how quick that happened? I mean in six verses there's this long conversation rationalizing about the evil. But notice how quick it takes for her just to do it. She took. She ate. She gave to her husband. And he ate. Usually the sin doesn't take near as long as it takes us to rationalize it in our minds. Right? The story speeds up. She takes, she eats, and then it says that she gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You cannot help but read this and see the passivity of Adam. He clearly stands by as all of this is happening. As verse 6 says that he was with her, and he ate. Now, it could be argued that Adam wasn't there for the conversation, that, that the serpent got Eve alone. And that somehow Adam only walked up at the end and didn't know what was going on. And Eve said, here, you take this and eat. But that doesn't fly, y'all. Not even from the language that you that she used. If you look at verse 4, when the serpent says, you will not surely die, that you in the Hebrew is plural. In other words, y'all won't die. Y'all won't die. He's talking to both of them. So what that means here is that Adam was there for the entire conversation and he kept his mouth shut. When he should have been protecting his wife from the serpent's deception, when he should have been correcting and knowing the word because God gave the word to Adam, he instead becomes a complicit partner in crime. This is why we tell our young boys, men reject passivity. And accept your responsibility and lead courageously. Don't just stand by and be passive. This is what our first father did. He stood by and let his wife be deceived and let the whole world fall into ruin. And God holds Adam accountable, not Eve. When, when God confronts them in this next passage we're going to look at, he confronts Adam first because it ultimately falls on Adam. And by the way, men, before we get too proud of ourselves and think that we are better or smarter because it was the woman who was deceived and, and the man, he wouldn't fall for something like that. It's worse for us because keep in mind that Adam needed no clever words. He just simply went along with it. I don't need to be talked into this. Yeah, I'll do it. He's not even thinking about it. That's worse, right? He sins willfully. Willful conformity. A passive husband who rejects his role as head, allows his wife to be lured away, and the responsibility and judgment ultimately fell on him. 
This is a warning for men to step up and lead and protect your wives. And so we're, we, we find here, in, as Romans 5 tells us, that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And now we're told that the woman took and ate. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I about had church this week thinking about this. Those two simple words of taking and eating brought the world into destruction. All she did was she took and she ate. And it would be a costly price to fix what happened from her taking and eating. So much so that it would take a man riding on a donkey into Jerusalem and being crucified on a cross as the Son of God and being raised from the dead to redeem those two words of taking and eating so that now in the church we use those words as gospel verbs. In Matthew 26, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. This is what's being offered to us at the table. This is why we need Christ. Because we're at, where Eve takes and eats, it leads us into sin. But where Jesus says take and eat, He gives life and forgiveness of sin. The last point we see from this text, verse 7, is that the knowledge of evil leads to guilt. When we finally fall to temptation, it leads to guilt. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? All these promises from sin, and then you fall into it, and you realize this isn't that great. Their eyes are opened, but they're open to their guilt. The sin that promised joy in life had led them to the grave. Isn't that what sin does? Sin always overpromises. And underpays. It'll take you further than you want to go. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. Sin makes the ludicrous promise. That the temporary pleasure of sin. Is greater than the eternal joy offered by God. And so this passage begins with Adam and Eve. Living together naked in their integrity and unashamed. And now the passage closes with them pathetically. Trying to cover their nakedness and guilt with leaves. And this is what all of us do when you try to cover your sin and try to appease God by just being better. I'm going to do better next time and clean myself up. And all of us try to function as our own personal lords and saviors. When we forget the gospel, this is what we do. I just need to do better next time and I got to try to be a better Christian as if somehow we can cover ourselves up with our moralistic fig leaves. As if that's going to cover up our sin. So the message today is clear for us. A thorough knowledge of God's word. And an unwavering trust in God's goodness are absolutely essential for us to have victory. Over sin. Over the world. Over the flesh. And over the devil. This is why Moses instructed the Israelites. Remember, that's who he's writing to. I keep reminding you of that because it's helpful to remember. Before they entered the promised land, he told them, put the word of God at the very center of your existence. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, he says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Parents, teach your children the word. Memorize it for yourselves. Read it. Learn it. Memorize it. Internalize it. Store it up in your heart that you might not sin against God. But let's not be foolish and think that we're not going to sin. Because Adam sinned, we are all under sin. And if we only stop here at our guilt, we have not preached a Christian sermon, and there's absolutely no hope for you. If, if you're feeling miserable right now, I have accomplished my purpose in this sermon. I want to spend the first 27 minutes making you feel absolutely miserable about your sin. Because only until you have hit rock bottom can you understand that God is the rock at the bottom. And that you cannot save yourself. And that you need not more good works, but you need grace. And so the last point I need to make that we got to make is that victory from temptation must come from the gospel. Must come from the gospel. The reality this morning is that all of us will fall into temptation. All of us have fallen into temptation. Probably even this morning before you got to church. We are no different than our first parents in the garden. And that's what makes Palm Sunday so exciting. That a man who was a carpenter from Nazareth. But also the son of God. Came riding into the streets of Jerusalem. Who would become our second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, Christ was victorious. So I want you to be encouraged this morning that by one man's disobedience, as Romans 5.19 says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Adam covered himself in leaves while Christ clothes us with the righteousness of God. Adam fell to temptation in the garden and was cast out into the wilderness. But Christ went to the wilderness to overcome temptation in order to bring us back to the garden. When Eve mishandled the word of God and was deceived, Christ masterfully used the word of God to silence Satan. Three times he responded to Satan's schemes in Matthew chapter 4 with the words, It is written that you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I would encourage you this morning and throughout this week and for the rest of your lives, when you face temptation, count it as all joy, as a trial before you to show that you are faithfully trusting God. When Satan tells you, that God does not love you because of your failure. Just say, wrong Satan. It is written in Romans 8. We are more than conquerors through him who first loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Nor angels nor principalities. Nor things present. Nor things to come. Nor height nor depth. Nor anything else in creation. Will be able to separate us from the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus. When he lies to you and tells you that you are powerless over your sin. Just respond. Satan, it is written that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. 
When the accuser reminds you that you are a sinner, just say, you know what, Satan, you're preaching this morning. You're absolutely right. But it is written in Romans 5, 8 that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When the serpent shows you the pleasure promised in a moment of sin, you can say, Satan, it is written that just like Moses, I would rather choose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. When the devil brings up your past, remind him of his future. Satan, it is written in Revelation 20, you are defeated and the devil who would deceive them will be thrown into the lake of fire. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. So three rivers, build your life today on the good word of God. And put your unwavering trust in the good God of the word. Amen? We're going to worship now. This is good for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Genesis 3, not just to remind us of the bad news, but to point us to the good news that we have in Christ. Father, oh, I pray that someone who might have wandered in here this morning, who is lost, who is who is walking in sin and death. Father, would you bring them to repentance and faith in Christ? Christ alone can save today. Christ alone can forgive sin. Christ alone has power over sin and death. Oh, Father, if there's someone in this room who's not a Christian, would you bring them to life? Would you take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh? Would you bring them to repentance? Father, for us who are in Christ today, let us celebrate and sing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who has come to rescue us. Father, help us to worship now in spirit and in truth. As we take joy in your goodness of your word and how good you are to us. Father, we love you and we pray that your word would take root in our hearts as we worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.